Hi everyone, this is David Tamez, host of uh, Lawrence Talks, and in this episode we, we are considered with the questions of personhood, moral responsibility, and the role of institutions as uh, moral arbiters in our, in our, in our society. Uh, and here we focus on the case, cases of Kyle Keshev and Brett Kavanaugh, and really the what our interest here in these two cases is this claim about uh, they are no longer the persons that they were, uh, in, in which they uh, participated in reprehensible um, behavior, and and so we try to raise some questions um, that come out in both of their cases that are should be of interest and really should be discussed a little bit more uh, thoroughly than. Uh, they have then the, ten, the sort of attention uh, that they have been given allows for, um, and so really that's really the point of of, of our project of our uh, podcast is to raise questions and not necessarily uh, reach particular conclusions. Um, and so, as as always, we are interested in in going through those questions and raising new ones if if possible. Um, and as always, I hope you enjoy. You can find us uh, on our site at lawrencetalks.org uh, or on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. Um, also, please follow us on Twitter. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Thank you. Okay, folks, uh, this is David Tamez, and this is Lawrence Talks. And before we get started, I want to mention that, uh, again, for those who are coming to this for the first time or uh, are not aware, you can find this podcast either on Spotify or SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, you could also find it on our site, lawrencetalks.org. Uh, before we get started with our topic today, I want to make a few announcements. Uh, first, uh, in, on September 26th, we will have our first uh, official event with Lawrence Public Library. Um, and the topic for that event is going to be uh, how to evaluate politicians, right? We're, so we're in the situation uh, where uh, Democratic nominees are fighting for uh, nomination to, be, to represent the Democratic Party in the re presidential race. Um, and so it's perfect time to start thinking about how do we evaluate uh, these politicians, especially as they... Uh, after these debates that they're having, the slew of debates that we're going to see from now and until uh, next uh, next spring, and so I think it it it's a very perfect it's a perfect topic for this time, um, and so look out for that. We have two speakers lined up, um, and waiting for one more confirmation, and that will be announced uh, soon. Uh, but look out for that event. Uh, we hope everyone can make it out for that, um, and. And coming up uh, after this, uh, soon after this podcast, uh, is a post regarding free speech and the regulation of, of speech. Uh, this is a very uh, in in the frame topic that's going around right now. Um, basically, how do we regulate free speech? Should we try to regulate free speech? Uh, what are the best ways to do that? Um, and that that uh, blog post will be uh, up and. Uh, up for your viewing and reading in the next couple of days. Okay, today's topic uh, is another uh, some uh, sort of another issue that has been in sort of the uh, public sphere so far uh, in this uh, over the last few year or years or really over the last year since uh, 
say, the Brett Kavanaugh hearing and uh, other cases where um, people have made the following uh, plea about being judged in a particular way or being judged for uh, prior actions or uh, actions that occurred in, the, in their past is that they're not the same people, right? They, they argue that they shouldn't be judged as uh, accord, according to what, how they acted at that time in that historical event uh, because they're no longer that same person. Um, they've changed, they've gone, gone, undergone substantial changes. Um, and so today's topic is, is, is going to be around that very issue, personhood, moral responsibility, and also the involvement of institutions in uh, responding to those cases or in making those sort of judgments about when or, uh, they should or should not uh, arbitrate those sort of cases about past past events or pa a, a person's past troubles. Um, joining me joining me here today again is uh, is Kevin Watson. Kevin, hello, welcome. Thank you. Okay, Kevin. So. Um, for today's case, we want to focus on uh, a recent, I guess, a recent issue, a recent uh, event with uh, a one of the former or former Parkland students uh, who turned into a, uh, I guess, who developed into a conservative uh, sort of pundit or conservative commentator. Yeah, he's a notable young conservative and uh, I guess a second rights, second amendment advocate? Yeah, I think that's one of the issues that he's come to advocate, especially after, uh, I guess, so he, where most of his classmates from Parkland went to uh, defending this regulation of, of uh, the Second Amendment, a regulation of people's right to uh, bear arms, he's defending the right to bear arms, almost this sort of absolutist uh, position that the NRA is in favor of. Um, so he's uh, he's going in a different direction than most of his Parkland classmates. Yeah, it seems that way. And his case, uh, so just so we bear the, bear the facts out there, from from my understanding, uh, two years ago he um, apparently partook in this this online chat group uh, where the main intent or the main purpose of that chat group was for the participants to engage in the most outrageous or extreme language. Yeah, he he has claimed in various articles that uh, part of the purpose of this chat group was to be extreme and shocking. In fact, as extreme and shocking as possible. Right, and so one of the things that one of the extreme languages or language he used were or using using the N word. Uh, and I think even uh, anti-Semitic comments as well, even though he himself, uh, I believe, is also Jewish. Yeah, uh, he ha himself has admitted that he engaged in um, speech that was abhorrently racial or mm -hmm. racist and was speaking in um, ways that we would commonly say were slurs, right? Uh, very problematic speech. And so, uh, following, I guess, a uh, this coming out in the public, um, he not only resigned from a position with Turning Point USA, which is a conservative sort of uh, think tank or or action group, political action group, um, but he, uh, 
there was also some uh, backlash with uh, Harvard University. Um, deci- he have, or came to the decision to rescind his uh, his accept or yeah his acceptance letter um, into the into the university. Yeah, Harvard. Um, in their rescinding of his offer, they say that um, part of the reason is that they. Uh, reserve the right to withdraw an offer of admission under various conditions, right? And some of those conditions are um, when an individual's behavior brings into question their honesty, their maturity, or their moral character, right? And it seems like in this case, uh, we might question the maturity or moral character of somebody who two years ago, before they were offered admission, was engaging in such um, problematic speech or behavior right and and one of so one of the things that uh i think is of interest for us here especially as a uh, public philosophy podcast uh, is this idea that he said where he says he's not the same person that he was um now what are the, some of the, some of the ways that we can understand that phrase so in the case of uh personal identity or self-identity there are a number of questions that can be addressed philosophically. So um, there's questions regarding uh, personhood, right? Uh, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions of being a person? There's persistence questions, um, which uh, are related to what makes us exist over time or throughout time. There's uh, questions regarding what evidence there are or there is to know what makes one person and another identical. There's questions about population, what makes um, two seemingly different people the same or two um, different people different. So questions of population size, right? Um, there's also questions of what I am, what what sort of thing am I or are we as human beings? And there's questions about basically who I am, which is about the features that identify us, right? And I think in this case, the most important question that we have to be thinking about here is the question that asks, who am I, right? So um, it seems like what um, Kyle is saying is that who he is or who he was at 16 years old is different than who he is now, right? So when we're asking, who am I, when Kyle is asking himself, who am I, um, he is saying... Uh, in the various interviews that he's given that he is a different person than he was. Um, that's a different, that or a difficult question or uh, to answer, right? And it's, it's unclear whether or not that's the case. So that's something that we have to think about carefully and that Harvard would have to think about carefully when they're making a decision. Right, because it, it, um, if we do believe that, um, say that he... Well, one one reason or one way or one issue in, in adjudicating that or, or trying to figure this topic out is to say, um, when do we say that someone is or is not the same person? So one of the questions that we might be asking in that case is a metaphysical question, yeah. right? So if we're asking the metaphysical question, it's pretty obvious that Kyle is identical with himself at 16 years old, mm-hmm. right? Um, There are various theories that we might offer uh, in an attempt to explain what makes Kyle the same person as he was when he was 16 years old. But I think it's pretty 
obvious to all of us that metaphysically speaking, yeah. <laughs> right, he is the same person. But um, look, when we're talking about who one is as an individual, we're also talking about sort of what defines us, mm-hmm. right? And these sorts of things are contingent and changeable, right? Um, when I was 10 years old, I liked to ride scooters, right? Um, currently at 30 years old, <laughs> I don't ride scooters. That's not part of who I am, right? And when I was 10 years old, being somebody who rode scooters might be part of my identity. It was something that was important to me. Um, but contemporarily, I wouldn't say that that's part of who I am. Right. Um, it's not something that I identify myself with. I don't say, I'm a scooter rider. No, I'm a philosopher, right? I'm an academic. I'm a husband. I'm um, a son, right? These are things that are important for me as a person and what identify me as who I am. Um, scooter riding is no longer one of those things, even though when I was 10 years old, it was something that was really important to me. And in this case, um, we have this um, length of time in which Kyle um, is saying that he's changed quite dramatically, we would think, uh, in two years. And so we have to ask whether that sort of change is or has taken place. Yeah, and it and just for the the history, right? Going back, I mean, again, we we mentioned that Kyle is uh, part of the Parkland group uh, or students that uh, survived the mass the mass shooting, um, and so it could it's certainly uh, plausible, at least with that inst- uh, with that uh, instance, um, that Kyle from that event underwent a number of changes. Yeah, it seems like somebody who has um, suffered this sort of uh, life-changing event could go through some very drastic changes in what makes them who they are, right? These sorts of things happen all the time um, uh, with uh, people who suffer traumatic events, right? Yeah, and so... uh one, one, one interest, I, I think, uh, I know you mentioned that maybe it may not be necessary, at least in adjudicating Kyle's case, um, about sort of metaphysically, what the sort of metaphysical notions we have of personhood. Um, and, so, and, that, and so that's not necessarily, so what he means by saying that he's not the same person, but what maybe he means is that uh, he doesn't hold the same dispositions at the same, he doesn't have the same... Uh, goals or desires or, or ways of thinking about who he is. Yeah, he seems to be thinking that he there the collection of properties that makes mm-hmm. who he is who he is um, has changed dramatically in some ways. At least in the case of um, being prone to uh, say racial slurs online. <laughs> yeah, and that that's sort of a, a that can be a difficult issue to sort of way through yeah right because in, in part it that seems to be a sort of psychological question yeah does someone have uh or maintain the sort of psychological maturity that they did at the time such that they may again uh embark on such uh, similar behavior um or have they gone undergone enough maturity to recognize that even if playing around even if it was just part of a uh, a joke or just to make people laugh uh, that they know better now. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I think one of the things that we have to think about is whether or not um, different forms of speech should be treated differently as well, right? So in, in this case, uh, because he was part of this chat group who was um, intentionally trying to be extreme and shocking, should we treat that sort of speech in the same way as we do when we're just engaging in everyday speech, right? If somebody goes around and is saying racial slurs to people, that seems more problematic potentially than somebody who's saying racial slurs in a chat room who, whose intention is to be extreme and shocking. Um, but maybe that's not the case. But I think that's something that we have to think about and think about carefully. Yeah, and I think, um, and just for for our audience and, and for, I guess, the, the further philosophical part, what are some of the metaphysical ways or the metaphysical uh, concepts of personhood that we kind of can kind of think of? So when we're asking the sort of question that says, what am I as a person um, that persists over time, there are several different answers that we might give. We might say that we're the sort of biological organisms that make us up. Um, so people like Olson and Van Idwagen defend these views. Um, there are those who claim that we are material things that are constituted by organisms. So people like Baker and Johnson defend those views or that view. There are those who say that we're temporal parts of animals. So David Lewis defends that view. There's some who say that we're spatial parts of animals. So um, Parfit in some places defends a view like this. There are some who claim that we are collections of uh, mental states or events over time, so Hume and Campbell. Uh, and there are those who say that we aren't anything, right? So um, some seem to think that Russell and uh, Wittgenstein and Unger defend a view like that. That we are not, uh, that if the conditions of personhood are what am I? X, X, and X, Y, and Z. So, no. Yeah. So some people say that, right? Yeah. That's just the wrong sort of question to be asking. Gotcha. Um, it seems like, so if you're asking what I think the most plausible view is, it's going to be something that has to do with our um, psychological continuity and connectedness over time. So um, a lot of the views that are offered are um, can rely on this sort of claim. So if we're saying that we're sort of collections of mental events or we're spatial parts of animals or temporal parts of animals uh, or material things constituted by organisms, uh, all of these views in some ways can say uh, potentially that uh, there are important parts of us that have to do with our mental states. And so when we're asking about somebody like Kyle uh, Kashev, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, I think one of the things that we have to think be thinking about is the sort of uh, mental states that Kyle that make up Kyle as a person over time, right? Um, is it the case that the collection of mental states that make up who he is over time has changed so dramatically that they're just not part of who he is now, even though they might have been part of who he was then? Right, and and, and again, in light of the of his uh, experience with or having experienced the mass shooting, you could sort of, that that's, it's sort of tempting to say that he, given that, he could have experienced a great deal of change yeah, psychologically. I mean, in a lot of cases, soldiers who come back from war 
it seems very obvious that they have changed dramatically in who they are as people when they come back, right? Um, people who experience PTSD, um, these people have experienced something that has dramatically changed their psychological identity, almost to the extent where um, they aren't sure what or how to live their lives currently. Um, maybe that's the wrong way of saying it, but m maybe in some cases we might say that they're unsure how to deal with the everyday lives that they were living prior to going to war, in part because of the dramatic and um, extreme uh, circumstances that they experienced at war, right? And these people we want to say are obviously dramatically changed. Um, and so experiencing something like uh, a shooting at your high school or anywhere else, it seems like might change you pretty dramatically in similar ways. Right, and, and it's, it, it, at the very least, and going back to, um, you know, Harvard's claim about maturity, um, it's, in that instance, it seems like they're, they're sort of uh, criticizing or judging or looking at Kyle Kushov at age 16 rather than Kyle Kushov at age 18. Yes. Because if, it's, if the case is, uh, or if the issue is with maturity, uh, the argument can be made is that in light of his experiences, he can be, he should be considered much more mature at the current at his current age rather than uh, compared to the age of sixteen. Yeah, I mean, so at sixteen years old, most people are quite <laughs> immature, right? That's sort of obvious to most of us, I think. Um, but it might be the case that. Uh, after reviewing the facts, they have Harvard has found that this sort of behavior calls into question to some ex su such an extreme extent the maturity and moral character of of somebody who is willing to say these sorts of things online or in their everyday lives that um, it's it's sort of hard to justify um, continuing to offer them admission to their university in part because. Uh, it's unclear whether they have truly changed. Um, but to assume that Kyle hasn't changed, I think, is also problematic, right? Um, because uh, it seemed like in the ways that he was trying to engage with both the university and the media um, was sort of at least showcasing the ways in which he has matured. Um, whether or not that is just a show right. is another question. But look, we have to look at the facts available to us. And the facts available to us are um, Kyle seems to have matured, at least in some ways. Right. And, and that gets us sort of uh, into our, our, our next or the related topic of moral responsibility. Um, how is our view how yeah how is our view or the way we uh build the concept of personhood related to um how we think about moral responsibility well i think most obviously is just that um when uh, somebody is morally responsible for uh some action in the past it better be the person who performed that action right and so when we're thinking about holding people morally responsible for past actions we have to say 
is the person that we're trying to hold accountable now identical with the person in the past? And so um, when we're answering that question, we have to both satisfy um, metaphysical accounts and uh, the sort of non-metaphysical or moral-related questions, right? So we have to say, metaphys metaphysically, they are the same person. But in addition, do they identify with the sorts of actions that they were performed that they performed at that time, right? And so some of the theories uh, that are on offer will give us both, right? So if we're looking at the sort of psychological states that make up a person over time, we might say, hey, look, the psychological states of this past person are just so drastically different that we can't really say that it's, it's the same individual. So um, like one of the questions that I think is important to be asking contemporarily, especially in, in Kansas, right, is um, something like the insanity plea, right? Yeah. So this is something that's currently going to be debated by the Supreme Court, right? Um, is it the case that people who make the insanity plea are justified in doing so, in part because it seems like they are different people than they were when they committed the crime? Right. You, I mean, just a, a, I guess a historical uh, example of that is that uh, it may or may not still be part of the Texas law that uh, if a husband finds or, or wife, but so have you, finds their significant other in bed with another person, they're not fully culpable uh, or blameworthy for the, what that ensues or the actions that ensue, say, if they were to um, severely injure the person or uh, even maybe kill the person that some amount of, uh, they, in, at least in court when it comes to their, their court proceeding, is that uh, there was temporary uh, insanity involved yeah. that led them to uh, perform the actions that they did. And mm -hmm. um, so that, that seems to be something that's been accepted in, in court before, if not uh, still, still accepted. Yeah, that is something that the court has commonly considered as part of the decision-making procedures that they're making, right, as part of the adjudicating process. And, and I think one uh, one other topic that, that is, so one other view that you can take of personhood is that, um, and this might be either in line with the view that we aren't anything at all, um, and, but the materialist, the materialist uh, view of uh, not just personhood but of general metaphysics uh, will say that we're we're not always or never in control of our actions, that everything is always de determined um, by prior uh, processes. And if we, if, if we hold that view, if that view is held by, uh, say, the courts or by even by everyday people, um, where does that leave us with moral responsibility? That's a really difficult question <laughs> to answer. I think if... If it's the case that um, we're willing to admit that people are determined, um, I mean, we just end up having to say, like, the court's decisions are also determined. And so uh, it doesn't, who, like, it doesn't really matter what we say here, right? The decisions that are going to be made are the ones that are going to be made. Um, the decisions that uh, everyday individuals are going to make are the ones that they were determined to make. Uh, and so it seems... Like the moral question becomes 
a little bit irrelevant, right? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, at least in court, it, it seems like um, it would at least well the, the basic view of justice that is currently held with the view that we have some uh, no we have some semblance of free will that we uh, in every just about in every instance uh, unless there are considerations of insanity we could have done otherwise yeah um, and give and if we take that away if we take away that could have done otherwise uh, portion of our of our uh, will of our free will um then it seems difficult for a court or even people uh criticizing others in everyday life uh to hold each other uh blameworthy for for their actions yeah it becomes much more difficult to uh say that somebody is accountable for the actions that they perform uh if it's not the case that they could have done otherwise right Uh, because yeah as you said part of the reason that we think that people are morally responsible for the actions that they were perform is because they could have done something different, right? And if they couldn't have, then it's hard to say why they're responsible for doing what they had to do anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so with, uh, with Kyle Keshev, it seems like, I mean, he... Uh, the discussion sort of would end for the the ter- uh, determinist or the uh, hard determinist or the materialist. Um, actually, I don't want to conflate the two. So that this yeah, we want to say hard determinist yeah. in this case because yeah. there's also the compatibilist position that could say that uh, determination and free will are in some ways compatible with one another. Um, but right, I, yeah, and so just for anyone listening, the compatibilist view in, in a sense would say. Uh, at, at the basic level, we uh, our actions are determined by prior processes, but there are a few occasions um, where choice is possible, um, although it may be more limited than the sort of libertarian uh, free will yeah, uh, notion. Yeah, I mean, they might even say that the choices you make are yours, right? You still make them, right? But that doesn't preclude you from being determined to make the choices that you do. You're still making the choices, and in some ways, uh, you're freely doing so. Uh, I'm using freely in square scare <laughs> quotes here, um, but the choice that you're making is determined by the past, right? By past actions. Right, and so, and this is all, um, at the, but at, at the at the moment, uh, for the most part. Um, most people, I, I believe, still hold that uh, some view of, uh, at least in, in the everyday conversations, um, hold that not all of our actions are determined, not all of our ac- actions are uh, exempt from uh, blameworthy, blameworthiness or praiseworthiness. Um, and so so at the very moment, at this moment, we'll, we'll take the view that uh, Kyle Kashov is... Um, Still, we can still judge his actions as being um, uh, blameworthy or praiseworthy, and it, and at the very least, that's what Harvard. Uh, so one, yeah. So now we can get into this this uh, this idea of institutions taking on their responsibility or what they take to be a responsibility to um, either hold others accountable in their own way outside of the court system, say, um, by. Uh, denying membership or by exclu- uh, exclusion, excluding 
certain people from uh, from membership, and that's appeared what appears to be what Harvard did did here is uh, they found Kyle Kushov of uh, being unworthy of being let into uh, Harvard University. Now, if we want to take the uh, optimistic view and say Harvard was taking uh, taking seriously their issue as a moral arbiter within our society, and saying that. Uh, Kyle Kushev uh, is someone we don't want to be uh, praising or uh, incentivizing with membership into elite universities, given his past actions. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, Kyle has said in an interview, which um, I don't know if I agree with or not, but I think it is telling about the sort of thing that's taking place is that Harvard has decided essentially that um, someone can't grow, right? Or that somebody can't change in various ways. And um, and in those cases, in cases where they've decided this, um, essentially they are also preventing them from enrolling in an institution that is the very place that could have helped somebody like Kyle to become a better person, right? Um, to change for the better, to become or lose their, the, to become less biased and to lose their bias and to learn why these sorts of um, problematic speech are a problem, right? And who is being harmed when these sorts of things are said. So, so that get sort of gets us into the question of uh, what is the role, or can get us into the question of what is the role of universities? Um, should they, so I think there are some views, um, or s some are the opinion that uh, Harvard, especially in this case, um, should not have taken on that role of adjudicating, or this, this sort of social um, uh, judgment, or this sort of taking on the role of the, of the moral arbiter in this case. Yeah, in this case, I think it's quite obvious that they have. Um, whether or not they should, I think, is a difficult question to answer. I think in some cases it's pretty obvious that they should be, right? They shouldn't admit uh, criminals of certain sorts, right? Because they pose a danger to uh, the community at large um, or the university at large. But in cases where somebody has engaged in problematic speech, I think it's a much more difficult question. Um, and whether or not the university should be um, acting as the adjudicators in these cases, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what to say here. Um, if, if the offenses are egregious, then maybe uh, the university should take a second look at this, this person's application and decide whether or not um, this person can make a positive change, right? Um, and if they deem that they can't, then, then yeah, maybe they should rescind the uh, the offer letter. But in this case, I think it's much more difficult to decide whether or not um, Kyle has made a change. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so the the optimistic view was that uh, you know. Harvard took seriously its social role in our society that um, where as a, as a university where they teach people how to not just 
learn certain facts, but how to be better people. Yeah. Um, they decided that Kyle Keshev, uh, as you as you may have may have mentioned, is that or may have uh, hinted, I was ir- irredeemable. I could not be, um, uh, or incur- incorrigible. That could not be uh, uh, changed by the by their education. Yeah, I think part of the decision is for them was obviously, or it, it should have been, maybe not so obviously, um, but was that. Um, Kyle wasn't the type of person that deserves to be at the university because of the problematic behavior that they've engaged, engaged in in the past. Whether or not um, Harvard should be doing that, I think, is another question. Uh, I think part of the responsibility of institutions like Harvard's is to change people for the better. And I think maybe Kyle is the exact sort of person that you want to be changing for the better and to ensure that um, the sort of problematic behavior that they were engaged in, in the past isn't something that they're going to be continuing to engage in the future, right? And uh, when you say, hey, uh, you've said something problematic, therefore we should exclude you from the realm of academic life, at least at our institution, you're essentially saying, hey, look, if you've ever engaged in a problematic act, we don't want you around. Um, But people who engage in problematic acts, I think we are all willing to admit, at least in most cases, can be changed for the better. And, I mean, that's my hope at least. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think at the very least what should have been identified or or could have been identified uh, to whatever extent possible that uh, any individual, not just uh, Kyle Keshev, because others have, I think, been... um, uh, Subject to a similar uh, determination by by Harvard, right? That he's not the only case that this has happened for. He's not. Yeah, uh, I think this was just a much more public case. Right. Um, and I think in part he he made or he made it public, or other people uh, made this made this public. I think Harvard found out about it initially because of the public mm-hmm. outcry about it. And th- that might, in fact, be part of the reason Harvard came to the decision that they did. Um, in uh, in cases where there isn't as much attention in the media and online, it might be the case that Harvard decides differently. Um, but not so. If Harvard would have continued to offer admission, I think they might have received a lot of negative backlash, and that might be part of the reason that they rescinded the offer. And I mean, that's maybe problematic for a number of reasons. Right. Whether or not that actually took place, we can't really say. Um, yeah, I'm not, it, it's um, while that is tempting for the uh, the pessimistic view that um, that there's, I guess, Harvard uh, resor- uh, resorted to this sort of uh, crude, um, maybe economic analysis that um, we can't. Uh, afford to undergo this this bad publicity, and so we ha- just have to. Uh, they might get there, so they obviously received some backlash uh, for making the decision that they did. Um, yeah, but maybe it's re- not as enough. Yeah, they're going to receive negative backlash one way or the other. Right. Um, and I think it would be extremely pe- pessimistic to say that they were only considering these sort of economic factors or. Um, marketing factors, communication-based factors. Uh, I think 
it would be sort of naive to think that. But it has to be one of the things that they're considering, right? They are a very large institution who is in in the media's attention one way or the other, whether they like it or not. And um, they're going to receive some backlash no matter what decision they make. So they have to be careful about which one they do make. And I, I mean, it's hard to say whether or not they made the right decision. I, I, I think that uh, in this case, Kyle's actions were very problematic. And whether he could have redeemed himself is a question that we can't really know at the time. I mean, maybe we'll learn in the future, but it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one uh, one thing you, you would hope to be, uh, could have been demonstrated at least, is that he had the disp- uh, disposition um, to change, to mature, and to be a better person. Um, yeah, when he first received notification from the university about potentially having his offer rescinded, he made sure to get into contact with various departments of the the uh, university in an attempt to uh, correct his errors. So in some ways, he, maybe he demonstrated that he was willing to try to make a positive change both in his life and for the university. Um, but whether or not he would have actually done that, it's hard to say. You know, So it's something that uh, we'll just have to continue thinking about, yeah. I guess. And yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if if he uh, received another um, ex- acceptance letter from an- another university, but hopefully, um, again, we obviously disagree with the language he used. Um, but whether or not the the sort of uh, the way that Harvard came about his decision was a, was the right way, or even the or to where they came out with the right decision, um, that seems to be in question. I think. Um, if you don't know who uh, Kyle Kashev is or if you um, those who maybe disagree with his politics and, and the sort of the crowd he's now hanging out with they might say that yes Harvard obviously made the right decision but those are sort of on ideological lines that's, that's sort of we might want to consider irrelevant to whether he's morally morally culpable yeah I think uh, in these sorts of cases, uh, looking at a person's political affiliations is, is the exact sort of thing that an uh, institution like Harvard should not be doing. Right. Unless those, unless those um, political affiliations are extremely problematic, right? If right. they're, I don't know, terrorist organizations, right? Then, of course, those should be considered when we're thinking about whether or not to rescind this person's offer. Um, but if they're just engaged in Second Amendment activism, I think uh, we have to be careful to, if we're going to say that that sort of political affiliation is something that is going to uh, prevent them from being part of an important institution like Harvard. And so I think this is, uh, this sort of decision that Harvard made, I think gives some sort of weight um, or Give some uh, give support to those who say that Harvard shouldn't be involved in these cases, shouldn't be involved in being the moral arbiter, is because sometimes they can make really bad decisions that um, aren't based on anything other than um, either ideological lines or lines that uh, would normally be considered irrelevant to um, 
considering somebody morally responsible or uh, reprehensible. Yeah, so I guess an additional question that we could be asking here is uh, should Harvard be considering uh, the sorts of things that the court of public opinion does when they're thinking about whether or not to give somebody uh, an admission offer to their university, right? So I think it is important to consider the things like Harvard does that they do, right, which are things like honesty, maturity, and moral character. But um, it's not so clear that some bad tweets or um, uh, something like that are going to be something that determines somebody's moral character. Um, and, but maybe they are, right? Maybe if somebody is willing to say something like this online, even in an attempt to just be extreme and shocking, it's the sort of thing that we have to be careful about because uh, a person who's willing to do that online might be willing to do that in their everyday lives. And you don't want that at Harvard University when uh, you want the institution to uh, be the people at the institution to um, be willing to engage uh, with a diverse group of people and um, be willing to accept everyone as uh, equals, right? And maybe this sort of speech demonstrates that somebody like Kyle wouldn't be willing to do that, but it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, and so this this brings up uh, a very difficult question for um, not just uh, the decision makers in Harvard, um, but also for those in uh, the court of public opinions, like who, what side do we give deference to? Uh, do we give deference to Harvard that they must have had information, um, like so giving charity, or do we apply the most charity to? Like do we apply to the decision made by Harvard that they must have had uh, evidence saying that Kyle, uh, it was very unlikely that Kyle would have changed his disposition about um interacting with people in this way or um, partaking in exercises of speech, of extreme speech, for a laugh? Um, or do we put the deference on for Kyle and saying, we don't know enough about him to say that he's not going to change his ways or he's not going to, he didn't learn from this situation? Yeah, I think that sort of question is a really difficult one, right? Um, what sort of evidence would tell in favor of either of those two uh, potential conclusions, I think, is something that we have to think carefully about, right? The sort of data that an uh, institution like Harvard would ha have available to them is very diverse, but um, look, if somebody tells you that they've changed, you, hopefully we can take their word for it. Um, Hopefully, right. I mean, other, yeah. I mean, it's if we can't, if we if sort of lose trust or uh, lose our ability to to do that, um, then uh, systemic trust goes goes away. Yeah, and that's really dangerous. Yeah, and so whether it's with individuals or with universities like like Harvard or institutions like Harvard, um, it's this is a difficult question that uh, needs to be really d uh, discussed more and adjudicated a little bit more thoroughly is um, how do we decide where, where deference is given or where the charity, 
where our charity is given in terms of uh, identifying the best sort of um, the best sort of beliefs um, that a person can have for the decision that they that they made. Um, and I think if we're able uh, if we're able to discuss those sort of things a little bit more, I, I, I hopefully we can get better at making those those decisions. But right now, I, it, uh, and part of the part of the reason why we undergo our project is they're not t being talked about in a very serious way. Yeah, I think part of the problem contemporarily is that we're just so willing and uh, easily persuaded by a limited number of facts, and we can jump to conclusions based on these sort of ideological lines um, without thinking about um, everything as carefully as we could. Um, and when we do think about things more carefully, we might end up coming to different conclusions than we otherwise would. I mean, maybe we arrive at the same conclusion, but uh, at least we did so for the right sorts of reasons. Right, and at least, at least we can... Um, Justify just the conclusion that we reached. Right, I mean, yeah. and it would be more difficult for someone who wants to disagree with our conclusion um, to really find fault with our the, the way we got to that, to that conclusion. Yeah, I'm, I, so in this case, I think, look, it, it might be true that even one instance of an abhorrent racial slur that, I mean, this person themselves admitted to saying that what they said was abhorrent, right? An abhorrent racial slur that was extreme and shocking, intentionally so. Maybe that's enough evidence to arrive at the conclusion that Harvard did. Um, but there are going to be much more difficult cases and so thinking about them in the ways that we're doing now, I think, is going to be important for those more difficult cases. Agreed. And, and, and another um, one way we can con contrast this view or, or, or our discussion or Kyle's case um, is with another problematic case, at least when we're talking about uh, personhood and the, this sort of um, colloquial way of saying that uh, we're not the same person or persons that we were um, is extend the amount of years that we're talking about. With two years, it's understandable to think that uh, Kyle hasn't changed that much. Yep, yeah, it's hard to say that a person can mature too greatly over in a period of two years, but when we extend that timeline, it's a lot different. Right, and uh, uh, on, that, on that point, and, and before I, I get to the point that I was going to make, currently is that um, at least the, the work wi of Jonathan Haidt has uh, at least gives some credence to the idea that um, college may not always be the best uh, or that someone goes to college or college like Harvard doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be better persons or learn to change their ways. What they may actually end up developing are ways of, of arguing for the case that or for the propositions that they already hold going in they just get better at arguing for them yeah um, and so that a lot of uh, times that uh, people don't necessarily get more intelligent they just get better at justifying they, their biases or something like right that. they just are now equipped with the tools of being better arguers this sort of sophistic uh, uh, this sort of ancient worry of sophism and uh, people not always, you know, learning wisdom, um, but 
only learning about ways of to be better arguers or uh, convince others of the, of, the, of their case. Um, but it, that's, a that's a outside really pessimistic yeah, that's view a, to have. Well, well, yeah, one that's a pessimistic view, and also, um, but it's also backed by some by some evidence. You can, some, you can yeah. yeah, you can disagree with with Jonathan Heights. I mean, you can qualify that some studies. Uh, I think some issues with the social uh, uh, experiments like that is that they haven't always been um, duplicated. Yeah, there's a lot of problems in um, psychology, sociology, and a number of other. Um, scientific fields uh, that study the well, the human sciences, let's call them, um, that just have problems being replicated in various ways. And I think that's something that we have to worry about. I think in these sorts of cases, uh, among others, that's the sort of question that we should be asking first, is whether each of these studies has been replicated, right. to what extent has it been replicated, and uh, if it has been replicated, were they following the same course of of action that the initial study was. Um, but I, in addition, part of the problem with replication is once you're trying to replicate a study that's already been done, you already have the conclusion you're trying to reach. And so then you have this problem of um, organizing the study in such a way that you're trying to see if it reaches the conclusion that you already have. But uh, in the sciences, you're not supposed to have the conclusion that you're trying to reach right. before you actually reach any conclusions. Right. You start with the hypothesis, and then you you conduct experiments that yeah. either prove or disprove that hypothesis. Yeah. Um, but and also that 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 re that's really not a worry that uh, Harvard wants to admit to, because as a university, they do want to say that they make people better off or make uh, provide an e education. Um, such that the person develops into a better decision maker in some way, a well-rounded person in some way, especially as a liberal uh, arts college or a liberal arts university uh, that is dedicated to this vision of, of education as developing well-rounded people. So they don't necessarily want to necessarily give in to that sort of uh, worry or pessimistic view that people don't actually change their ways. They only get better at uh, sort of fortifying their past behavior, or fortifying their uh, their dispositions that they that they hold. But the uh, point that I was also getting to was, um, in terms of time and temporal temporal uh, considerations, the other case uh, prob problematic case is one such that uh, such such as uh, Brett Kavanaugh, which is uh, now sitting a Supreme Court justice. Um, we're adjudicating that case based on uh, his actions 30 years prior to uh, his sitting in front of Congress for his for his hearing for his uh, yeah for the hearing of whether he be nominated to or um, be seated as a as a Supreme Court justice. 30 years seems more, um, and so we're, argument for argument say we're going to bracket the other problematic issues of the Brett Kavanaugh case. Um, and and just pay to say uh, even if at the very least he did partake in problematic behavior uh, such as maybe alcoholism um, or general um, debauchery of some kind short of uh, sexual assault or uh, 
severe sexual assault that he was uh, has been accused of. Um, yeah, whatever the case may in, may be, whatever the facts are, at the very least, it seemed like there is some evidence uh, and some admittance from uh, Brett Kavanaugh that he engaged in uh, drinking and partying while he was in college. Right, and so it. At, this, at the time of his hearing, he too wanted to appeal to this idea that he too was not, the, he's not the same person uh, as, he, as he was at that, at that time. Yeah. And that, given the, the passing of time, say 30, about 30 years or so, um, that seems a little bit more likely that he is not the same, uh, at least not in a metaphysical sense, but in the, in, the, in the sense that he's a changed person with different dispositions and yeah, it seems pretty obvious that somebody who has been sitting as a judge for the number of years that he has, um, the features that define who he is are dr- dramatically different than the features that defined who he was when he was a college student. I think that's, or a high school student. Um, uh, that's, I hope, is obvious, right? Um, somebody who's been sitting as a judge and hearing cases for as long as he had before being appointed as a pre- Supreme Court justice is going to, as one of their important features, be a judge and a legal scholar, right? Um, that's going to be part of what defined who, what defines who he is now. And prior to becoming a judge and a lawyer and studying the law, when these events were taking place, that wouldn't be part of what defined who he was. And so in that way, at the very least, um, Kavanaugh has changed dramatically as a person. Um, whether that is something that should be important in our considerations of whether or not um, somebody who is engaged in these sorts of behaviors can sit as a Supreme Court justice is going to be another question, right? Um, Do we want somebody who we think uh, or who we have uh, some evidence or other has um, engaged in behavior that some people think is problematic for various reasons? Um, It may, in fact, actually be extremely problematic in some cases. Uh, whether or not they should sit on the Supreme Court, one of the most important um, offices in the United States, uh, is something that we have to careful, extremely, or be extremely careful in our consideration of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think um, at the very least, uh, even it, um, of the less problem, uh, less problem, but problematic but still very morally reprehensible actions um, even if he is a changed person uh, there are those who want to appeal to this idea that um, justices should have this sort of priestly nature uh, yeah but I think that that's an extremely naive view yeah. right um, <laughs> yeah I, to claim that people who sit on the Supreme Court are these moral saints is just, it's naive. And I think as contemporary society, I think contemporary society is going to begin to recognize that as um, people who have had social media all their lives and who have had um, pictures of themselves um, published for all the world to see through the course of their entire life, it's, it's going to change that view. I, yeah, I agree. There is, it's going to becoming more and more problematic Given that so much uh, of of people's lives is being made uh, public through Twitter, or Facebook, and so on, and much is coming to light about 
uh, people who didn't grow up with those with those uh, platforms um, that having heroes or pointing to people as uh, moral exemplars is becoming more and more difficult, um, right? Because it, there seems to be no one who has been untouched uh, in terms of uh, having engaged in reprehensible behavior at some point in their lives. Um, so it, it, this sort of moral purity or moral sainthood is becoming, uh, or this expectation of moral purity or sainthood, um, if not, if it hasn't been already made problematic, or if it hasn't been problematic before, um, I think it's becoming more and more problematic. Yeah, I think even in the cases where we think it's obvious, like, oh, this person was a definite moral saint, like, this seems like one of the um, exemplars of saintliness, the perfect person. When we actually learn more about them, in a lot of cases, they engage in behavior that's problematic, right? Um, and I think now it's just sort of becoming more obvious and more easily accessible to the masses, whereas in the past that might not have been the case, right? Um, and so this sort of court of public opinion um, digging into people's pasts and trying to find problematic behavior to call people out on to this sort of cancel culture problem that we're sort of currently engaged in at the, at the moment has... I think in some ways is problematic and maybe aimed at the wrong sorts of things. I think what we should be asking is whether they're the type of person who's going to be making the right sorts of decisions on the Supreme Court, the sorts of decisions um, that are backed by the law and whether or not, I mean, as Harford was deciding in the case of Kyle, uh, Kyle Cash of whether or not they are honest and mature and have moral character, right? I think in the case of somebody who's sitting on the Supreme Court, these are the sort of questions that we have to think about much more carefully. Um, but somebody who engaged in drinking and partying, ignoring the other cases, let's just consider drinking and partying. Uh, I think that it, you'd be surprised to find many people who don't do that. I don't... I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I mean, it, uh, and again, to, to be clear, the reason why we're bracketing those other considerations is because we're not uh, in a sort of s framework just, or yeah. space to make we're not it. not in a position to make, to adjudicate those sorts of issues because we don't, I mean, I don't know the facts, right? Right. So I can't really come to a conclusion about those. But um, in the proceedings with Congress, it, it seemed it seemed like, he was willing to admit that when he was younger, he was drinking and he partied. And um, when he was asked whether or not he was an alcoholic, he said, yeah, he drinks beers. But I'm like, hey, it's a lot of people do. That shouldn't be something that calls your moral character or maturity into question. Um, yeah. Again, and yeah, and again, just as with, with Harvard uh, and, and Kyle Cash's case, we asked, uh, again, the question of here, where does the deference go to? Is, um, is it with, uh, with Ford's uh, account of what happened between her and, and Brett Kavanaugh, um, or do we give deference to Brett Kavanaugh? Um, now, it, it's obviously in, in, uh, in court and in, in law, deference is paid to the accused because until they are proven 
uh, uh, guilty. Court of public opinion, sort of different practices. Um, there are reasons why deference uh, is paid to the victim in the court of public opinion and, and other cases, yeah. in part because we'd rather err on the side of uh, caution rather than um, uh, really wading through all the available evidence. It seems like in a lot of the cases in when we're talking about the court of public opinion and um, things like the Me Too movement, it's, it seems like the rise of it has came as a result of... Um, the regular court system just not doing or giving uh, proper deference to um, the statements of these individuals or these women or men who have accused others of problematic behavior. Uh, and so the justice is never actually uh, found for these people. And so the court of public opinion has become the sort of place where justice is being sought in some ways. Yeah, and, it, yeah, that seems and where the people who are making these claims are actually being heard. Yeah, and, I, and so I think uh, there may be this. Uh, I think across the board in a number of our institutions, whether it's government um, uh, and in other our corporations, our universities, so on and so forth, trust is going down in a lot of these areas, uh, and the same is going to be of our court systems. Yeah. Um, for uh, there are some good reasons why trust might be going down. There are also bad reasons. Uh, one bad reason is is simply that uh, it's not so much that more and more uh, cases are being decided in a poor manner. It's also could be that um, a lot more attention is being given to these single cases, such that it seems more widespread than it is, uh, such that people are paying more attention to those cases than the general uh, well-doing of uh, these co uh, these institutions than than anything else. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, there are a lot of important cases being decided at present, right? The last few years, it seems like there's a lot more, um, uh, a lot more cases that are being decided that are important to the general public. And maybe that's a good thing, that maybe that means that the public is just paying more attention to the decisions that are being made by the Supreme Court. Um, and that's why it seems like now people are just more focused on particular ones because people are just actually paying attention. Um, whereas maybe they just weren't paying attention previously because it didn't matter to them so much. But in the cases that are being decided now, it seems like uh, it's people are recognizing how relevant these decisions that are being made are to their everyday lives. Yeah, and I think that, that might be part of it too. And, and, and one other problematic reason, or one, yeah, one other reason why um, people are getting more and more incensed on uh, these sort of cases is that they're being discussed in very poor manners um, in the, yeah. in the uh, primary outlets uh, where these t discussions take place, namely... Uh, what what are called uh, or what you know under the blanket uh, heading of mainstream media, um, these discussions are being had by uh, people that are hired to commentate and give the most extreme uh, uh, versions of of uh, of the discussion. That yeah, people are people are willing to have opinions about the court cases that they've never read, <laughs> or about 
the decisions that have been made by previous court cases that they're totally unaware of until some media outlet has talked about it, right? Um, and talked about it in sort of extreme fashion. Right, and so um, in, in, in closing our, our discussion here, that's um, whatever you take from, from our conversations about, about Kyle Keshev and, and Brett Kavanaugh, our main co- interests uh, in, in this podcast and any of our other podcasts are, are the questions. Um, what sort of questions? Uh, these are sort of the questions that we raised uh, and the issues that we raised in this, in this discussion are the ones that we, we find important um, and that are more or less being um, Ill, very poorly discussed in uh, in, in public, um, not just not, not by uh, mainstream people or not by uh, everyday people, but just by mainstream uh, media accounts. Um, and so we're, it's not the conclusions that you should namely uh, that that we're c- trying to come to, or we're not concerned with conclusions necessarily, but the questions and the issues that that are brought up here. Yeah, I think it's really important to point out that in these, these the cases that we're talking about, um, we're not really sure what sorts of conclusions should be reached here. And I think that's why it's so important for us to talk about them and to think about them. Um, because it seems like more and more people just have these really clear-cut opinions about what should be or what should have happened in these cases. And um, hopefully... Uh, our discussion here has helped um, to uh, make you think more about the opinion maybe you've already reached or maybe you, you haven't reached. Um, but, yeah, just to think more. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and as, as Andrew Yang says, think, think harder. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and so uh, whatever, wherever you fall on these on these uh, discussions, on these controversies, uh, we want to hear what you what you have to say. You can obviously leave a comment on our page, or um, or send us a an email on our on our contact page. Um, because in part, we're we're not just the ones that want to. We don't want to have this discussions just between Kevin and I, uh, or people that uh, that we know. We also want to have it with want this to go on everywhere else. Um, so, if, again, you can f- uh, find us at lawrencetalks.org um, and also on Spotify, iTunes, and, and uh, SoundCloud. Um, that, this was our, again, our, our discussion here was about personhood, moral responsibility, um, and, institutional, and institutional responsibility. Um, the discussion, uh, discussion should continue. Uh, look out for our future events, uh, September 26th, about how to evaluate politicians and our upcoming post, uh, blog post about uh, regulating free speech. Is there a right way? Is there a wrong way? Can it even be done? Should we be seeking regulation of speech uh, to begin with? Um, all that to follow. Uh, thank you guys for, for uh, joining us. Thank you, Kevin, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, this was Lawrence Talks, and I was your host, David Thomas. Thank you.